Apple presents events at the Apple Store. Let's take a look at the trailer for Pacific Rim. We always thought alien life would come from the stars. But it came from deep beneath the Pacific. you made land in San Francisco. The second attack hit Manila. Then the third one hit Cabo. Then we learned this was not gonna stop. In order to fight monsters, we created monsters of our own. We needed a new weapon. The Jaeger program was born. Two pilots, our minds, our memories, connected. And man and machine become one. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome this evening's guest moderator, Jordan Hoffman, and tonight's guest, Idris Elba. Hello, what's happening? How are you? Hi there. Uh, my name is Jordan Hoffman. I am a uh, film critic for Film.com, and with me is Idris Elba, and you, you know who he is. Uh, let me turn on my iPad here at the Apple Store to remind myself of some of the questions I have because I am lucky enough to have seen Pacific Rim in full a couple of days ago and this trailer is really just the beginning. It is, uh, you know, there have been some good summer movies so far. Man of Steel, pretty cool. Iron Man, pretty cool. Uh, this is really some next level shit, so it's pretty exciting. <laughs> I told him to say that. <laughs> uh, by the way, I haven't seen the film myself, so I, I don't know, but uh, I'll take your word for it. <laughs> well, I look like a guy who likes summer movies. What can I say? Um, and, and, and your character, uh, everything about this movie, from the writing to the special effects to the badass lines, 
uh, are really terrific, including the way everything is named. So in the film, Idris Elba is, as you know, the monsters are invading. We build the robots to save us, because why not? And um, somebody's got to be in charge. This is the man who's going to save the world. And his name is Marshall Stacker Pentecost, which, because that's a badass name. <laughs> so I imagine, in my head, this is how it goes. Uh, you know, your agent calls you, Guillermo del Toro wants to make a film, big budget, Warner Brothers, summer movie, and you get the script and you read the character's name. That's probably the first thing you read. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, mental, we've all read Malcolm Gladwell's Blink. Boom, what do you think when you find out about this? I mean, uh, first thing I think is that he's religious, that Pentecost, Stacker. And I think that maybe he's some sort of a preacher, some sort of a guru. Um, but the name was definitely the best, best character name I think I've ever had. Stringer Bell was a good name, right? Uh, that's, that's got a ring to it, Stringer Bell, you know, but Pentecost Stacker? That's some other shit, boy. <laughs> Well, it was really some other shit. Okay, so you're going through the script, and of course you're thinking, how the hell are they going to do this? They're battling in Hong Kong. They're battling, uh, you know, there's monsters. There's giant robots the size of, of skyscrapers. And then toward the end, and I believe it was in this trailer, there is the scene as the leader of this community of rebels fighting on behalf of mankind must do. He has to rally the troops, a la Henry V. And you get your Henry V monologue, yeah. and there is the line, today we are canceling the apocalypse, which is just a great fucking line. So where are you, you're, I picture you, you know, you're a movie star, you're on your hammock somewhere reading the script, people are fanning you, and you're reading the script for the first time, and you're thinking, I get to say this line, I mean... You don't get lines like that too often. No, but you know what? When I read the line, and I have to admit, it sounds better than it actually reads. So when I read it, I was like, what? Today we are canceling the apocalypse? Who speaks like that? And then, you know, when, you, when you've got like 600 e extras, you've got this bodysuit, you've got this armor, you've got this big robot's foot next to you, you've got that haircut with no fade, you know. <laughs> You, you got a moustache that's bigger than that iPad. You know, you, you feel the words. The words suddenly came to me, you know, canceling the apocalypse, you know, I felt, I felt it. But when I read it, I was like, I don't know if I could say that. But. <laughs> so were you a lover of sci-fi growing up? I mean, because this is a movie that is rooted in, it has, um, it has a lot of its roots in traditional Japanese animation. You don't have to be an anime lover to, to like it. If you know Voltron, that's cool, but if you don't, you know, don't worry about it. Japanese monster movies like Godzilla and whatnot, Mothra and Gamera and all those cats. If you love it, great. If you don't know it, this is a movie that's meant to introduce American audiences to those two, uh, you know, huge um, subgenres of, of Japanese films. Uh, was this something you were into growing up? No, I mean, I, I, it completely escaped me. I was into Star Wars, Empire Strikes Back. You know, that was, that was me and sci-fi. So when I, when I got this film, it was definitely an education for me. You know, the graphic novels, the history. I mean, I remember, remember Godzilla? You know Godzilla, right? Yeah, you know, there was Godzilla, but that was about it for me. So, you know, I kind of went on the process of sort of learning how, how deep this world is with Guillermo. 
Um, did now we? I'm sure we all know who Guillermo del Toro is. He made uh, the Hellboy films. Uh, he made Pan's Labyrinth, which is a great example of how you can use fantasy to tell a more sophisticated and and perhaps intellectual story that it doesn't often happen in the U.S. Um, and uh, what are some other Guillermo's credits? I'm blanking right now. He did yes, Blade. he did the Blade movie. Mimic. Blade. Well, Mimic wasn't so hot. Yeah, but what's uh, that classic <laughs> film, the black and white classic? Uh, well, he's done. I'm, bl remember. I'm blanking right now. But he's. I think we mentioned the, the top ones. He is, you know, sort of an uber geek for this stuff. He loves this this material. So I imagine when you sign on for one of his projects, does he hand you a homework and say, if you want to get into the head of of what this film is going to be, these are some. Reading assignments? Yeah, no, we, I mean, more than just reading, you know, he took us, the actors, you know, one by one, and we would have these massive sessions with him talking about, you know, each, the history of, of where, he, where, he, where it came from in his head. Um, he took us through the history of the characters, the history of the robots, the Jaegers. Um, you know, my character is sort of, you know, dipped in Japanese culture, so I had to learn a lot about, you know, in fact, originally the script, the character was called Sensei, believe it or not. And in the redraft, it was called Stack of Pentecost. So I had to learn a little bit about, you know, sort of Japanese culture in, in the way my character would move. You know, when he was called Sensei, he kind of moved in a certain way. He had a very sort of Zen-like. But then, you know, as we moved into the script, he became that, that guy. But no, you know, Guillermo's very um, hands-on with actors. He's got shitloads of information to tell you. And he'll tell you every little beat that he's thinking. And, you know, when we're shooting, you know, Guillermo's very um, pedantic, very detailed. You know, if, this, if he puts it there and you move it there, he's going to be like, cut, hold up. Okay, let's go. <laughs> and I'm not joking, that detailed. So, But I, I don't see that happening with, with you, though, because your character is the boss of this thing. I mean, and you're in character during a film. You kind of have to be yeah, in the no, mindset. I put my drinks where the fuck I like. That's what it's going. No, but um, no, with, even, no I, I, I think with, with Guillermo, in terms of that character, he gives you a lot of license, but... Ultimately, he's the boss. You know, he knows exactly what he wants. Well, it's interesting because uh, in in the film, uh, you know, a, a crack in the Pacific open, Ocean opens up, monsters from another realm attack us, as they do, um, and uh, the world bonds, and all the old uh, cultural divides shatter away. And this is an international fleet of Jaegers to fight the kaiju monsters. And this is also very much an international film. You're a British man. Uh, Guillermo is a Mexican. Um, Charlie Hunnam is Australian. Uh, the woman, oh, I forgot her name. The, the Japanese woman. Rinko Kikuchi. Very nice. Rinko. Uh, is Japanese, obviously. And, uh, and that sort of is represented in, in the film as well. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about working on such an international uh, film for a movie made for an international market? This movie will translate very well. I think Warner Brothers made a very sound business investment uh, because uh, this movie is going to be great in any language they dub it to. I or, mean, I, I think that was part of the DNA of, the, of what Guillermo wanted to do. He wanted an international cast because, you know, the problems of the kaiju is an international world problem. And so, you know, it, it, he wanted it to feel like if the world had to come together, this is what it would look like. You know, there won't be so many, you know, Americans or English, everyone would be in one army. Um, and I think that was sort of like imprinted in the DNA of the whole script and, and then obviously in the, in, the, in the show in the end. Yeah. 
Well, you know, we have a clip uh, if you want to check out a few minutes of behind the scenes where you can see uh, Idris and the rest of the cast and Guillermo and really cool some of the drawings and, um, you know, how the special effects were done. Uh, all using, by the way, and I'm not joking, a lot of Apple products, which is kind of neat, I got to say. So can we roll that? Where's my drink? Is it, oh, no, it's good. <laughs> tradition really in Western live action about robots that are 250 foot high. It's basically a building walking around. The term Jaeger is German for hunter. It's one of the nicknames for these mechs. Mecha culture is obviously something that hasn't been done a lot for mainstream audiences. So we needed to top what had gone before and we needed to get bigger and badder. I was very influenced by anime, you know, mainly the anime of my youth, Tetsujin 28. I really assembled a group of designers that knew and loved anime. The only rule I gave to the whole crew is that we should never discuss reference. We would respond only to the design of that particular robot within the universe of Pacific Rim. The first step on designing the robots was we did like 40, 50 silhouettes of all the robots. And we just looked at the silhouettes and I said, this one's good, this one's good, this one's good. And then we would grab that silhouette and start developing that robot. Guillermo's been very clear that he wants to differentiate all the Jaegers, to come up with a personality, a, an attitude that each of them have that makes them different. Ready to activate the Jaeger in three, two, one. The Russians control the Jaeger called Cherno Alpha. It looks like a big tank. It's incredibly powerful. There's the Chinese Jaeger run by the Ways, the triplets. I think that would be really visually exciting to see these three people piloting one of these Jaegers. A striker is the Mark V Jaeger faster and more fluid and more agile than any other Jaeger. Gypsy Danger is the very special Jaeger. That's the sort of hero Jaeger. You know, Gypsy Danger, we wanted very much to feel like a classical gunslinger. And we gave it the anatomy of a big cowboy. I wanted the majesty of a tanker, big flat surfaces made of a lot of plating. And in between those things, you see this intricate machine moving. Pistons and levers and gears that are creating the mechanical movement. We reveal that level of design only in certain areas. That gives a frequency to our robots that you haven't seen in live action in any film. We really wanted to design these mechas to be robots that would make us excited when we were 10 or 12 years old. I didn't want to reference any other work of fiction. 
in the design of the Jaegers. I didn't want them to look like a certain mech or to look like a certain piece of anime or another movie. I wanted them to be all their own. July 12th, there you go. Let's just wait online right now. Um, so I don't think it's, uh, you got to see a little bit of um, the pilots in the cockpit and you saw that they were sort of moving in these very cool choreographed uh, in tandem moves, which is because there's a scientific, uh, science fiction concept uh, that the two are, are linked, kind of like a Vulcan mind melt. They call it the neural drift or the neural handshake, which is pretty neat. And um, I don't think it's giving too much away to say, even though Idris's character is, is the, the big boss, circumstances make it such that he's got to suit up and kick ass himself. I think we would all demand our money back if that didn't happen. So I want to talk a little bit about those shots where you were, you know, Guillermo's saying, oh, you're going to hit a big uh, monster here, but you've got to move with your partner in the exact... How was the choreography to that? Well, you know, what I should explain is that, you know, Guillermo likes actuality as much as he can. So there was a lot of green screen, but the actual mechanism, the robot's head where the soldiers would be inside was actually built on a soundstage. And it was this huge, huge, you know, replica of a, a robot's head that sat on a gimbal. And the gimbal would move in accordance to how it would move if we were actually in this thing. And then they put us in this suit, which took about 45 minutes to put on. Uh, and then they put us in a harness. And then myself and the other actor would be in this sort of like treadmill situation. And we had to move in tandem. And I'm telling you, man, that was the hardest shit to ever do. I mean, because you've got this thing moving. You've got flames, water, wind going at you. I mean, you felt like you were really really in that thing. So it helped us as actors to kind of really, we didn't have to really imagine how uncomfortable that would really feel. Do you know what I mean? We had, to, we had it for real. But it was a really good experience in that sense in terms of, you know, science fiction. And we know that films are made with a lot of CG and, you know, actors have to imagine. But this film, a lot of the real sort of, you can tell the difference, you know. There's a lot of real sets Real, um, real shit going on. So it was good. Now, do you get a Do you get a chance to rehearse in that, or is it just like suit up, get in the gimbal, and we're rolling? I mean, no, we rehearsed a lot. We rehearsed some of those set sequences, especially, you know, the robots fight in a certain pattern. You know, whether it's punching, kicking, and the actor and yourself, we have to do that at the same time together. So we had to rehearse that a lot. It was yeah. it was really difficult. <laughs> well, listen, in a little bit, um, we're going to take some questions from the audience. So think of some cool questions, and in a little bit, we'll, we'll call you out. There'll be people running around. But before we do, um, my God, there's so much else to talk about before we get to that. We got Thor 2. Heimdall. Did I pronounce it right? Is it Heimdall? Heimdall, yeah. Heimdall. Heimdall uh, uh, guarding the Bifrost on the Rainbow Bridge. The Bifrost was destroyed in the last one. You're mm -hmm. out of a job. Yep. But Heimdall mm. returns in Thor part, part two, right? Yeah, no, Heimdall's back, and, and uh, a version of the Bifrost is back. The Bifrost lives. 
Um, that's shot. That's done. You're ready to rock on that. You? Uh, no, it's not finished. We're still shooting on that. There's still some bits. So I'm going back actually in July to do some more. Do you have the helmet? Like, do you keep it with you? And <laughs> like, are you allowed to take that offset? Or no, man. That is not CG though. That's a real thing on your head. Oh yeah. <laughs> And my neck, in, you know, when I wake up in the morning, my neck is always crooked, so I need a massage right now. <laughs> and some volunteers have just uh, appeared. <laughs> no, it is a very, uh, again, one of those costumes that is, it looks fantastic, but it's very difficult to wear. It's huge. The helmet is huge, and it's like this. You That's know. the price of doing business. It's, yeah, uh, man. <laughs> That's what you got to wear if you're going to look after the gods. All right, good. All right, so Thor 2 is coming out later that year, later this year, and that is awesome. Um, you are also a musician. You are a musician. What? No, I'm a bedroom DJ. You know. <laughs> That's it, really. You are also... No, I heard some of, your, some of your tunes, and you are a DJ as well, and I was looking at your Twitter feed, and you did a gig not that long ago, and a friend of yours was like, a friend, a Twitter, well, a friend, sure, everybody's a friend. A guy on Twitter said, hey, what was that French track that we heard at your show? And you're like, that was Amadou et Mariam from Senegal. Yeah. And now's the opportunity. There's 500 million uh, iTuners uh, tuning in on iTunes on this podcast. Let's give, because they're one of the greatest bands out there. No, that's a show. great, great, I love African music. I'm, I'm West African and, you know, what up, what up? <laughs> And I love, I love hearing contemporary new African music. Miriam and Abadou are, are new to me. I haven't been a fan for a long time, but when I was doing this fashion show, that was one of the first songs that I picked for it. Yeah, yeah. They're a great group. They're actually a, a married couple. They're, um, I don't know how old, but they're a little, a little older. Uh, and uh, they're blind, and he plays guitar, and she sings like you would not believe. They're, they sound beautiful They're just It's together. amazing, and they come to America once a year, so get on their website and find out when they're going to play, because yeah. it's very rare. Um, could not be more different than the films we've been discussing, i.e. Pacific Rim and Thor, but uh, later this year, around Oscar season, if I'm just going to throw that out there, you're uh, portraying Nelson Mandela. <laughs> Which, uh, I don't know too much about it other than you're playing Nelson Mandela. That's all I really know. Yeah, I, I am. And I have to say, audience, I hope you don't mind, but I just feel really... Um, I don't want to talk about Nelson right now. You know, he's very sick. His family's there. I don't want to talk about the film. You know, it feels sure. a little bit displaced to do that. So I hope you don't mind, but, you know, I'm kind of thinking about the big man, you know? Really. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, he is, you know... A legend who lives among us right now, and the film is coming out later in the year, which means there's plenty of time to talk about it later on. Um, we're talking about a lot of your great roles. Obviously, you mentioned him earlier, Stringer Bell. The more time, the more distance we get between now and The Wire, it seems like the more important The Wire becomes. And you cannot go to a you know, an intellectual blog. You can't, you can't pick up a copy of The Atlantic or Harper's or The Economist or something where they don't reference it as a source. You know, it has already been canonized. You know, we joked before about Henry V. It, it, it is a very important cultural touchstone right now for everyone, as it should be, I think. Um, was there ever an inkling in your mind when you were doing the show you knew it was good. We all knew it was good. Did you know it was this good? No. In short, I didn't. You know, the way The Wire was pitched in the beginning, it was a procedural cop show. 
you know. Uh, and when I read it, I realized that there was much more to it, but I didn't realize how, how important it was, especially to, you know, television, what we know as modern day television, you know. I didn't realize that, you know, the why would end up being, you know, one of the reference points for good television uh, for the rest of my life and its life. Um, but I knew that the writing was good. I knew that we were gonna see a part of the world, Baltimore, which doesn't get any shine, you know what I mean? And I knew that the actors that they had put together were real and authentic and not star-driven. So they, they really, you know, the producers, David Simon had a very, very definite vision for it. And it took me a year, you know, that even after the first season, I, I realized, it was, it was after the first season, I realized that this show has got um, legs to a wider audience than I first thought about. Was there something, was there a particular moment, was there an episode either while you were performing it or when you were thinking about it after where you said, oh, that, that was more than I realized was happening? Um, no, when I was shooting it, that, none of that realization came. You know, it was literally two years afterwards right, right, right. when people were screaming, where's Wallace? Well <laughs> no string! Where's Wallace, man? You don't know me, brother. What are you talking um, And, you know, but I realized that it was really penetrating an audience in a different sure. way. Well, well, just so you know I'm not lying, you can see what my last question is. How many times a month do you say? How many times a month are you walking around and somebody that you've never seen shouts to you, where's Wallace? Um, okay, so in about four years ago, in one month, I would probably hear that about 58 times. <laughs> A month, and now it's about six, seven, eight times okay. a month. All right, that so. seems like a more. Yeah. Uh, so just guessing, number. though, you know, just, <laughs> just rough figures. Yeah. All right, cool. I'm. It, I'm using every ounce of self-restraint not to ask you myself. So you know, just so you know. <laughs> um, okay, well, we've got some questions here on the floor. I'm sure we have our friend um, on the side. Hi, Idris. Welcome to New York. Thank you. Hi. My name is Helena, and I love you. I love you too. <laughs> um, and I know that you don't want to talk that much about the Nelson Mandela movie. Um, I was just wondering, though, um, being that you started from such a gritty drama like The Wire, and now you're doing a blockbuster, and um, later this year, a phenomenal, I'm sure, biopic of Nelson Mandela, was there any point during um, that film where you had an aha moment or just a moment of consciousness that, you know, Will Smith did, you know, Muhammad, you're doing Nelson, that you just thought to yourself, wow, this is such an honor, or did it change you in any kind of way? There were many moments where the, the aha moment, you know, when I first got the film and halfway through my first day, my second day, I mean, there were moments like that throughout the whole process. It's such a, uh, the, the film, definitely changed me making that film understanding who that man is and you know just deepened my own perspective on myself on the world uh, and it, it's it's a it's a it's hard for me to even just talk about it in a trivial sense because you know i mean in a in, in a situation like this because there's so much to talk about making that film and you know hopefully how it in, uh, impacts you know the audience and educates the audience but for me it was a life-changing film to make for sure All right, 
Hi. Okay. Hi. So nobody said anything about Luther, but I love Luther so much. Oh my God. So two questions. Can you tell me anything about Luther season three? Yes, Alice, please. Alice more. Because I heard, please, Alice. Um, I heard that they were going, she was going to get her own series and also that you were going to possibly do a Luther movie. And also, you haven't said, no, I heard that you were supposed to pipe down on the whole James Bond thing, but can you pipe up on that? Because, you know, I want to know. So that's like eight questions. You see, you, you did say two. Yeah. Um, My degree is in English. Okay. Don't judge. <laughs> Um, where do I start? Well, yes, Luther's back, uh, Luther's season three. Um, I think we, we open in London uh, in July, July 2nd, I believe. And then in, um, in America, on BBC America, in September. Um, I'm really excited about this season. I mean, it's, it's very tough. The, the, the show has evolved. You know, we, the, first show, the first show, we didn't know who we were, what Luther was, what it is. Second show, we started to understand it. And this, the third show now, we, I think we understand it a little bit. So um, I'm really proud of it. Um, yes, Alice is back, um, causing all kinds of tr trouble. Um, and I don't want to spoil it for you. What I will tell you, though, is Luther is evolving. You know, Luther is a different type of Luther, you know. Second season, Luther was contemplating suicide every day. And, and this season, he's moving on from that. You know, there's a, there's a love interest. You know, there's a little bit of, you know, stuff. So I'm excited She says she doesn't like that. Okay. Somebody yeah, said, yeah, I don't like, like that. <laughs> yeah, okay. I, I won't tell you what happens to her. Oh. <clears throat> um, the James Bond is a, a massive rumor. It's a, it's a rumor that's... It's, it's got, it's got taken legs. It's the coolest rumor in the know, world. Right? <laughs> I'm definitely proud to be associated with, you know, you know, an actor that people would love to see who play that role, but it isn't going to happen at this point. It's not, it's not happening. Um, but if it did happen, I mean, that would be great, no doubt. Hello, my name is Jaden. And how old was you when you when you started making the movies? Oh man! <laughs> Hi, Jaden. Um, that's a great question. When I started making films, I was roughly around 21 years old. But when I was um, about 12, how old are you, Jaden? Six. You're six. Okay. Yes. So when I was like 12 years old, I decided I wanted to be an actor. But I didn't start making movies until I was. About 21. That's a good question, man. What do you want to do? Do you know what you want to do? Um, <laughs> I'm going to be a philanthropist. What? I thought. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, can I please shake your hand? Yeah, man. Come on. Give him a round of applause, man. What a boy. Um, my question is for one of your works that I think that's one of the best works I think that you've done sometimes in April. Um, and that piece, the performance to me was so raw and seeing how a lot of people compare it to John Cheadle, of course, for Hotel Rwanda. Um, but it was so much more graphic. And knowing that it is actors, of course, but seeing those people and 
portraying these people that had passed and had been murdered. You knew it was fake, but seeing that, how did it affect you? And do you feel like it made you better to be the actor that you are today? Yeah, I, I, I'd said it in the press a couple of times, actually, that that film at that time, which was post The Wire, one of the first jobs I did post The Wire, absolutely changed my, my, you know, my goals as an actor. I wanted to be, you know, you know, star or whatever. But after I did that film, it was more important to play characters that moved me. Um, Rwanda was quite reluctant to make that film. We shot it in Rwanda and, you know, that tragedy happened only 10 years old, 10 years before that. So when we went there as actors, you know, we felt a little bit disrespectful, you know. There were people that were still de dealing with the trauma of losing their families, losing their city. Um, and, you know, it, 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 it moved beyond just an acting job, you know. It moved beyond me learning an accent and learning the language. It just became, it almost became like my duty to do, that, do it right, you know. The film takes a very journalistic approach. It's very... It's very hard to watch, you know. It's not like Hotel Rwanda, which is a good film, but it's a little bit more of a movie. This film is a really tough watch, as you, as you said. But it, yeah, it absolutely did change my, my, my world in the way that, you know, I realized that I was very fortunate to have shows like The Wire and I should just keep pushing for characters that are deep, that, you know, say something, you know, go through something. Um, so yeah, that's a great question. Thank you for that, though. Thank you. I wanted to say congratulations for all of the work that you've been doing. I love legacy, I love the way your mind works, and I hope that to see more of your own writing, your, uh, your producing as well too. Um, tell me where I can see you DJ. <laughs> you know, um, actually, uh, I play house, a lot of house music, and this summer, I'm, I'm, gonna, be, I'm gonna be in Ibiza, Ibiza, Spain, basically for the whole summer doing a residency. So if you get a chance to come out there, <laughs> I'm DJing on a Friday and a Saturday. I be for rocks. All right, baby, come out. All right, Jamie, thank you. You know, Idris, it's funny. I, I, um, I've done a few of these. And uh, I always tell my mom beforehand, oh, I'm going to yap with so-and-so at the Apple Store. I'm going to yap with so-and-so at the Apple Store. I said, I'm going to yap with Idris Elba at the uh, Apple Store. And um, she says, oh, he's handsome. <laughs> Just figured I'd let you know. Thanks, Mom. I appreciate that. <laughs> I have a two-part question. The first, my first question is, how often are you offered lead roles um, with a really complex character and a really unique and compelling narrative that seriously challenges you, challenges you as an actor? And the second part of my question is, would you be so kind to accept a script that has everything I just mentioned <laughs> in addition to having being specifically written for you? He did frame it well. He did... <laughs> well, what's your name? Kwame Winston Stewart. Kwame. Um, actually, um, I don't get offered those type of roles a lot. But one day, uh, this gentleman wrote to me. Uh, his name is Thomas Hakimi. And he wrote this script called Legacy. And he was a first time director. He sent me the script. I loved it. I, we raised the money and we made the film. Um, so. That was the last time something like that has happened. Now, the fact that you have your script here, I'm absolutely going to read it. And uh, no, because, you know, thank, you don't need to applaud. I think this is, this is the way that, you know, uh, good filmmakers are found, you know. I'm an actor and I like to be challenged. And, you know, the, there are great, great opportunities for me, definitely, but not all of them are challenging. 
So, you know, I'd love to read your script. Um, my team is over here, Rande. That's a Rande right there. Just give the script to him at the end and, um, you know what I mean? Okay. Oh, what? <laughs> oh, let me see it. Because in the first 10 pages, that's where we get the work. <laughs> Hold on a second, guys. Okay, okay. I'll keep reading. Thank you, man. Thank you, coming. I appreciate it. Hi, Idris. Hello. Hi. Um, me and my friends have been in America for the last nine months, and I noticed you said processing instead of processing, which is an experience that I go through sometimes. And um, I just wanted to ask you, when you're developing accents in your roles, do you have to mentally think about it? Do you have to like go back to your British accent? Do you have to... I don't know, think about what you're doing. Yeah, you I mean, there's, there's um, you know, people say, oh, you know, your American accent was so good and da-da-da-da, but, you know, the truth is I had lived in America for four years before I actually got a job playing an American. And when I got here, my accent was awful. I couldn't get a job for shit, you know what I mean? Um, uh, do you remember that film, Brown Sugar? Yeah. I went up for Boris Kojo's role. <laughs> me, that was supposed to be me, man! But one, I couldn't play basketball. And two, my accent was awful. So, you know, now the, the, what I say to actors, especially English actors that, you know, want to do American accents, I'm saying, like, do you, have you ever spent time in America? Do you, you know any Americans? You know, do you, un, do you, do you know how, any history about America? Because if you don't, that's where you fall immediately. Because once you understand a culture, then you'll understand why they speak, how they communicate. And then you'll understand how to, you know, manipulate your mouth to talk like them. And I, I, I always thought it was just something as easy as, you know, learning phonetics or listening to a voice coach. But for me, it was more about understanding the culture to be able to speak that way. So now when I'm doing a film, you know, obviously, you know, like, for example, Nelson Mandela, which I don't want to really talk about, but that role and that accent is so well known but I had to understand who, you know, who his people were, who his family was, who, uh, you know, the, the tribe that he comes from. To understand that, then I could understand how he speaks and the way he speaks. So there's a lot of work that goes into accents. You know, even I'm doing a film in England soon where I'm going to be playing someone with a real sort of street East London accent. That's not my own accent, but I have to put some thought to that to make that sound effect uh, convincing, so. Were, were you excited when Guillermo said this in Pacific Rim, you're British, that's fine? I mean, I think a lot of people in, in the US who don't know the depth of your work, you know, ha maybe haven't heard you with a British accent and they might go, oh my God, look at that. Well, that's the problem, man. As soon as you tell them that you have an accent, then they're like, oh yeah, I hear it now. <laughs> No, you didn't. You didn't hear it before. So now that, you know, my work has doubled, you know, I have to work extra hard, especially if I'm playing Americans to, you know, to, to make it sound convincing. Hey, how's it going? I'm right here. Okay, okay. Sorry. What's up, man? <laughs> hey, Idris. My name is TJ from Chicago. Um, quick question. So I, I have like a two-part question. The first one is, is when you were working on Obsessed um, with Ali Lauder and Beyonce, I, I'm just curious because a lot of friends of mine always had the dis this discussion. Did you all ever look to Fatal Attraction as like a, a source of reference in terms of the way that you maneuvered around the characters in the story and the script? Um, well, I don't think we did 
you know, sort of consciously. I think in the back of our minds, we understand that Fatal Attraction is the sort of the archetype movie with that subject. Um, and we, so, you know, we didn't use it as a reference, but it was certainly in the back of our mind as you know a benchmark because it's a great film and it's been done. Um, so no, in, is, is is the short answer. Thanks. You have a two-part question. Yeah. That's the second part. And my last one is, what would you say is your favorite kind of reference in the accents? What would you say is your favorite type of character to portray? Favorite type? Um, honestly, the, the, the characters that take me away from myself as much as possible. You know, I don't want to recognize myself in it at all. Um, so I don't have a favorite type, but I think the more challenging, the more uh, crazy <laughs> the characters are, you know, the, the, better, the better it is for me to play, yeah. Hi, Hello. my name is Alyssa. Um, really excited to be here. Um, is there anyone that you really wanted to work with on a movie that you haven't worked with yet? There is a million good people, from actors to, to filmmakers, that I really want to work with, that I haven't had the opportunity to. Um, and not just saying it's because I'm in New York, but Spike Lee is one. Um, no, Spike is an amazing filmmaker, and, and, and he and I have threatened to do it a couple of times, you know, and um, I'm hoping that that will happen. Um, there are so many directors and writers and actors that I really want to, to work with. The good thing about, you know, sort of stepping up the ladder as an actor is that you are, those doors become easier. You know, you, 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 you tell a director, hey, I really like your work, you know, sometimes, you know, some synergies formed there and you make a script and then, you know, something gets something there. So I'm excited about that climb because, you know, as I climb, you know, I get a chance to sort of really choose the roles and choose the people I work with. Well, listen, with that, I want to thank everybody for coming. We have, uh, it's a little bit before nine, so if you have any iPads you, you want to buy real quick. Um, Pacific Rim is out in theaters on July 12th. Probably midnight July 11th, which is the way to go because it's pretty uh, pretty awesome. So thanks again for coming. Yeah, well, thank you. Sorry, Jordan, but I just want to say thank you guys for coming. The questions are great, and you paid attention. I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. Thank you.